Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can, but to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? From ID, this is The Clown and the Candyman, an eight-part podcast about two pedophiles and murderers from the 1970s and the tangled web they wove. My name is Jacqueline Bynan, and I'm a true crime journalist and television producer. Not a lot gets to me. This story, though, did. Every now and then I get letters from people who are fascinated with crime books. I was fascinated by your case. Don't believe that all of this could have happened without somebody knowing it. There's such a distortion as to facts and truth. They've got this fantasy monster thing, which is nothing like the real story anymore. That's the voice of John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, one of America's most prolific serial killers. We'll be hearing a lot of his voice in later episodes. During a six-year period in the 70s, he raped, tortured, and murdered 33 young men, and then buried most of them in the basement of his Chicago home. How was that possible? How did he get away with it for so long? To understand what he did, you have to understand what I uncovered about the 70s. The truth is, a lot of boys went missing. Many were abducted and abused, and many were murdered. John Wayne Gacy was just one in a long line of men preying on boys across America. And the more I looked into it, the more convinced I became they were all connected. It was like a rabbit hole. When you find one victim, there was one more. And when you find one pedophile, there was one more and more and more of them. Why didn't we see it? I think the simplest answer is... 
we didn't want to. But it sure changed things. If you're old enough to remember the 1970s, you'll remember Watergate, Richard Nixon, there was a big gas shortage then, the Vietnam War was raging, there was shag carpets, sideburns, wild hair, and wide, wide ties. The hippie counterculture and the sexual revolution was in full force. But for many Americans, that was the stuff on the news. Their America was still mom and apple pie and Andy of Mayberry. At least, that's what we wanted to believe. Kids played outside unsupervised. It was commonplace to hitchhike. People rarely locked their doors. Before we left on vacation, my parents spent hours just looking for the house key. By the end of the decade, sadly, that world had largely vanished. Hitchhiking was a death wish. Locks and latches were standard, strangers were lurking everywhere, and kids were disappearing. Nothing was what it seemed. Even the institutions we trusted were hiding places for sexual predators and murderers. There were evil people out there. They appeared ordinary, and it's their ordinariness that was the most unnerving of all. Monsters in plain sight. And it started with the Candyman. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? 
Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. His name was Dean Coral. He molested and killed 27 boys from 1970 to 1973. Most people haven't heard of Dean Coral. I know I hadn't before I dug in. But once I did, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It's unforgettable. It's Houston, Texas, in August 1973. A neighborhood called The Heights, just a few miles from downtown Houston. As neighborhoods go, it wasn't that remarkable. Blue-collar workers, first-time homeowners... Michelle Boudreaux's family was from that area. She was 10 years old back in 1973. Times were very different then. Your neighbors were all outside. They knew each other. You could ride your bicycle around the neighborhood. You could walk with your friends without being worried. And then everything changed. Yeah, it it changed after that. Everything changed. It started with a phone call one muggy Houston morning. It was August 8, 1973, and Dean Coral enters our story dead. A patrol officer answered the call of a shooting at 2020 Lamar in Pasadena, Texas. Outside the house were three shaken teens, 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley, 19-year-old Tim Curley, and 15-year-old Rhonda Williams. A 22 caliber gun was on the ground next to them. Henley told the officer that he'd just shot Dean Coral and his body was in the house. Now what's interesting is how these three got together in the first place. The night before, the two boys, Elmer Wayne Henley and Tim Curley, had performed a rescue mission of sorts. Rhonda had a fight with her dad, and that wasn't unusual. Her home life wasn't great. Her mother died when she was a baby, and her dad was an alcoholic, and they didn't get along. This time, though, Rhonda packed her bags. Now, she didn't know really where to go, so she called Wayne Henley. And she knew Wayne had a crush on her. So Wayne and Tim drove over to her place, picked her up, and told her they were going to a party at Dean Coral's place. Now, Rhonda knew Dean didn't like her. What Rhonda didn't know is that Dean didn't like any girls at all. Why Wayne brought a girl over to Dean's place that night is still a mystery. But something in Henley snapped that night. And now, here they were, sitting on the curb outside the house, being questioned by the police. The party was definitely over. Like Henley said, the patrolman found Dean Coral sprawled in the hallway, naked, crumpled face down against the wall. He'd been shot six times. As a homicide scene, eh, it wasn't the goriest. But when detectives saw the rest of the house, it was a scene none of them would ever forget. 
they had no idea they were about to uncover the most horrifying killing spree the nation had ever seen back then. Detective Sidney Smith is the only detective from Pasadena still around who was assigned to the case that day. In one bedroom, there were polyethylene plastic and uh, board with holes in it, handcuffs and ropes attached to them, various sexual devices, a lot of uh, acrylic spray cans, marijuana. At the station, the story the three teenagers told was no less bizarre. They were having a party there. They were uh, what we called in those days bagging. They're sniffing acrylic spray out of a bag to get a high. They got so high they, they passed out. And when they woke up, uh, they were all tied up or handcuffed, all three of them, including Wayne Henley. The other two had their mouths taped shut so they couldn't talk. And Carl was trying to have sex with the, the other young boy. And he told Henley that he was going to kill him. Henley talked him into letting him out of the handcuffs. And when he did that, he immediately grabbed a pistol and shot him. Both Tim and Rhonda backed up Wayne's story. He saved their lives. Still, 17-year-old Wayne Henley wasn't sure if the police would believe that he acted in self-defense. So he added a detail. A detail that changed everything. That's when Henley told the story about Carl telling him about murdering, torturing, sexually assaulting young boys and burying them in a boat shed. And he even had names of some of the boys that he said Carl killed. I didn't believe him. It just seemed such a bizarre story. And I've heard many bizarre stories before that didn't turn out to be true. We started checking out these names to see if they were missing persons or runaway juveniles. We called uh, Houston PD juvenile, and that's when we learned that some of them have been listed as missing or runaways. Henley wasn't finished talking. He said he could show them where they were buried. Pasadena and the Houston police and Henley drove about 45 minutes outside of town to a boat storage facility. There it was, just rows of sheet metal glimmering in the afternoon heat light. Henley pointed to number 11. We found the boat shed, but it was locked. I got a tire tool out of the car and I broke the hinges off of the galvanized door. And immediately when we opened the door, it smelled really bad. Something was dead inside that boat shed. I mean, I'd smelled that before. At that point, I thought, Henley's right. <laughs> I believed him. On that hot August afternoon in Houston in 1973, 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley sat in the patrol car outside the storage facility, and Detective Sid Smith was about to uncover the worst crime in Houston history. 
looking around the ground, I saw a, a position on the left side of the boat shed where the ground was cracked and raised up. That's where I grabbed a shovel. I had some uh, trustees there to help, and we started digging, and about six or eight inches under the ground, we found the first body. It was nude, wrapped in plastic. It had begun decomposition, but it hadn't been there that long. We just kept digging and kept finding more. They were layered on top of one another. Yeah, some had been, been buried for a long time. Some there were nothing but skeletons. And you never knew who you were going to dig up? No. Someone said that you had, uh, you were worried about your own brother. Is that true? Well, I had a younger brother who was a, a street kid at that time. And he lived in the Heights where most of these victims came from. So I, always, I was always a little concerned that I might, might find him. It was unbelievable. Body after body, there seemed no end in sight. Danny James of the Houston police hadn't been a detective for more than a month when he was called in to help dig. You could smell it when you got out of the car. It was black gumbo in a, you know, a 15 by 25 foot boat stall. And it had the most horrible smell you could ever imagine. You'd hit lime first. And when you hit a section of lime, you knew that there was a body underneath it. The bodies that we were digging up weren't grown men. They were very small. I mean, I remember digging up one I think the jeans were about maybe three, two feet legs, or, and it was a very small body. And uh, you don't forget things like that. By now, reporters had caught wind of the discovery. But unlike today, where the crime scene would have been locked off, they were everywhere, inches away from the boat shed, cameras everywhere. And Henley was wandering around outside the boat shed, talking to the reporters. It was bizarre by today's standards, by anyone's standards. Henley, he was standing outside the boat shed. He was still handcuffed, but he asked me if he could call his mother. One of the members of the media had a car phone. It's Wayne. Yes, this is Mama, baby. Mama? I killed Dean. Brian? Ma'am? What are you doing? Yeah, yes. Oh, God. Where are you? I'm out of his warehouse. Out of that warehouse he keeps. Can I come out there? No, you can't come. <laughs> I'm, I'm with the police, Mama. The only emotion I ever saw from him was when he was on the phone with his mother that night at the boat shed. Other than that, he was just matter of fact. That evening, TV stations in Houston interrupted regular programming. Imagine seeing the bodies of boys dug up and removed from a boat shed in real time, just across town. This had never happened before. The term serial killer didn't even exist back then. And for the folks in the Heights, it struck a chord. Everybody was shocked. And then you're wondering, well, so-and-so's been missing. You know, is that what happened to him? So 
all of a sudden, anybody that was a runaway was a possible victim. By the next day, the police had unearthed 17 bodies. Besides, how could this happen? The other question was, who's Dean Carl? Skip Hollinsworth is a Texan and the executive editor of Texas Monthly. Skip spent five months researching this story before writing his piece entitled The Lost Boys. I interviewed Skip in Texas. Dean Coral grew up in Indiana and Tennessee. His dad was an electrician. They came to Texas in 1962. They opened a candy shop. Dean was this big, broad-shouldered young man, thick black hair, big black sideburns, and friendly. He was always good with the kids who came by the candy factory. He would give them free candy that his mom had made, pralines or Turkish delights or pecan logs. He set up a pool table in the back room and let the kids play there. He would sometimes give them rides on his motorcycle. He was sort of like a good Boy Scout leader. He wasn't someone that people were scared of. In fact, the most remarkable thing about Dean Coral was that he appeared so thoroughly unremarkable. His mom gets divorced. She marries a merchant marine, and he says to her, you know, I think there's something wrong with Dean. I think he's got some homosexual tendencies. He sure does like being around other boys. His mother was so upset that she divorced the merchant marine and she closed the candy factory and moved to Colorado. Now she might have assumed that Dean, who was so close to her, would come with her. But he said, I'm staying in Houston and I'm gonna work at the Houston Power and Light Company as a lineman. And for the first time he was alone, he had an apartment, and that's when something came unleashed in him. The night Dean Coral was shot dead and the bodies were being dug up, 18-year-old David Brooks showed up at the Houston Police Department with his father, and he dropped a bombshell. David Brooks said that Coral didn't kill these boys alone. Elmer Wayne Henley was more than a victim he was a willing participant in these murders. Of course, his story was the same as Henley's story in the beginning. Well, Carl told me he did this. I didn't participate in any of those murders. So he started telling about Henley's participation. When we told Henley that Brooks was implicating him in the murders, that's when he decided to tell the truth that he participated in the murder of many of these young boys, helped bury them, and David Brooks did as well. Henley did participate in the murders, uh, helped strangle the victims or shot the victims. He actually told us that one of the boys was a friend of his, that he shot him and thought he was dead, but I guess it just knocked him out because he came to and Henley said, I just shot him in the other ear. It didn't take long for Brooks and Henley to come clean about what was really going on. But still, you have to think, how did two teenage boys get involved with a pedophile who was willing to kill their friends? Brooks was a boy of about 12 who started coming over to the candy factory. 
and so had known the corals for a long time and would hang out there. Brooks's father said, Dean's the first grown man I know that hasn't made fun of you. Coral had an apartment at the Yorktown Apartments, which was a place where a lot of young singles were starting to make their first marks in business and economy and in Houston. And it was there that he brought one of his boys named David Brooks, who was this ascetic looking, pimply faced young man who a lot of kids made fun of because of the way he looked. He had long blonde hair, he wore thick aviator glasses. Dean had given him money, he had bought him a car, he had taken care of him in a way that his own father had not. And Brooks sort of saw Dean as a father figure. And when Dean asked Brooks to pull down his pants so he could give him what Texas law at the time described as oral sodomy, David did it. It wasn't that David was gay. David felt like that's what he had to do to continue to keep his father figure's affection. A few weeks after that happened, David goes up to the apartment and just assumed he could walk in, and he saw Dean having anal sex with two terrified teenage boys on the bed. And Dean said, get out of here. Later, Dean told David that he shot both of those boys and buried them in a boat shed. So he initially went to David and said, this is what I'm doing. If you will bring me boys, I will pay you $200 per boy. And he began to lure boys into the van saying, hey, we've got some marijuana, or we have some beer. One of the boys David lured into the van was the same Elmer Wayne Henley, who would later kill the Candyman. Henley's childhood was no day at the beach. His father was a violent, abusive alcoholic, and he took a lot of that out on Wayne, the eldest of four boys. Wayne's mom finally left her husband when Wayne was about 14. But what he endured at the hands of his father stayed with him. Maybe that's why he ended up with Coral. No one knows why, but Dean Coral saw something in him and soon Henley was recruiting boys along with David. Henley got so involved in this that he brought his own friends to meet Coral and later be killed. David Hillegeist, who lived just down the block from Henley's home. Mark Scott, who invited Henley to one of his birthday parties. Homer Garcia, who was in Henley's driver's ed class. All of them were murdered. All of them disappeared. All of them had parents who drove the streets at night looking for them. Henley told detectives that he feared for his life even before Dean strapped him to the torture board that night. Dean told him he belonged to an organization out of Dallas that bought and sold boys. Henley said, Dean told me his organization would get me if I ever did anything to him. He said he tried to tell his mother, but she just wouldn't listen. Let's stop right here. That organization out of Dallas may sound like an idle threat to keep boys quiet, and maybe it was, but later in this series, we're going to learn about an organization that sounds a lot like the one Coral's talking about here. 
This story didn't end with the 17 bodies in the boat shed. Henley told the police there was another burial site, Lake Sam Rayburn. There, the police dug up four more bodies. After that, Henley told the police about a third burial site, this one on a beach. And the next day, the two teens, Henley and Brooks, took the police to High Island Beach. Again, this is 1973, and the scene at High Island Beach was wild. Here's Skip Hollinsworth. Brooks and Henley sat on a sand dune. Reporters went up to him and asked him questions, took their photos, and they watched and pointed to where they saw that they remembered bodies being buried. There were young families out there and kids with pails and shovels digging in the sand. It was the weirdest, surreal scene you could imagine. Bulldozers and diggers dredged the beach. NASA even sent a helicopter over with infrared equipment, hoping to help locate the burial sites by air. They found six more bodies. I'll never forget how Danny James, the young detective, talked about sitting with Henley and Brooks that day as the scene unfolded. So I was out there more or less, I guess, babysitting Henley and Brooks while other detectives and other agencies were looking for bodies. David Owen Brooks was very quiet. He was just like he was kind of staring off into space. And I tried a couple of times. Since he didn't reply, I just gave up on it. I did speak at length with Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. He was very talkative. He was just a scrawny little kid to me. He had stringy hair skinny. So I was nice to him. I acted like he was my buddy. And the more he would say, well, the more I would ask him. Henley said that he thought that there were other bodies that were along the beach, but he wasn't sure where they were or whether he could find them. He was just talking like a magpie, you know, and he was telling me how they would go out and find boys walking the street. They said, hey, you want to go to a party? And they told me they had a torture board there. He said they would tie them on the torture board and molest them. And then they, he said when they got tired of them, they would kill them. But Henley said that I didn't know how hard it was to strangle someone. It was just another day for him, I guess. And I just, I was just floored by that. The details of what Dean Coral did to his victims are hard to forget especially for the families of those young men. None of these boys had an easy death. Two of the boys were forced to fight each other while handcuffed to Dean's torture board. Dean told them whoever won would be allowed to go home. That was a lie. It all started with Dean's handcuff trick. Dean handcuffed himself and pretended to get out of them. Then he dared the boys to try it themselves. Go on, he said, see if you can escape. They never had a chance because Dean had the key. The handcuff trick, remember that. It's coming back in this story later. Once they were trapped, Dean took them to the empty bedroom, strapped them to the board, and the torture began. In his confession, David Brooks stated, once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. 
It was all over but for the shouting and the crying. And then David Brooks and Wayne Henley helped dispose of their bodies. He said that they would load the bodies in a van. That's how they removed them from the house. And they would either bury them or put them in a boat stall. Then they went, started going to Lake Sam Rayburn in High Island. Henley sure wasn't upset about it. He never shed a tear. In all, the police found the bodies of 27 young men, aged between 13 and 20. At the time, it was the largest mass murder in the history of America. And if Henley hadn't talked himself out of the handcuffs and shot Coral on August 8, 1973, who knows how many more victims there would have been. How could these boys disappear and no one notice? The answer was, a lot of people did notice. Over the next weeks and months, as the police and the medical examiner began identifying the bodies of the young men, a pattern emerged. Most of these kids were from the Heights, and they'd been reported missing. The police had the reports, and that's where it stopped. At least 22 of these boys had grown up in the Heights. 11 of them went to the very same school. When one of the mothers went to the principal, he commented on the strangeness of it all. Yet no one raised the alarm. Now these families did look. Some spent their own money. They put up missing person posters. They hired private detectives. Fathers camped out at the police station, begging for help. It seems hard to believe now. But when I asked Detective Smith about it, he echoed a refrain I'd hear over and over again during the course of this investigation. There were a lot of kids missing, but in those days, it was a different time. Kids went missing and ran away all the time. They may stay away from home for a week or two to smoke dope or bag glue or, or whatever. Uh, it was a different era. You look for them, you contact their friends and see where they try to run down where they've been, but that's about all you can do. Should they have noticed there were that many kids missing? City the size of Houston, the Houston area, Pasadena and all the other communities. There were thousands of runaway juveniles. File cabinets full of runaway juvenile reports. Dean Coral didn't make it easy for the police either. In an especially twisted trick, he forced some of the boys to write postcards to their families, saying they had found a job in another city. For many families, it didn't make any sense at all. Michelle Boudreau knew one of the victims, 15-year-old Billy Ray Lawrence. And when I called her, it was like it happened yesterday. Billy was definitely the cool kid. <laughs> I was enamored with him. <laughs> Tell me about Billy. Describe him. He was tall. To me, he was handsome. He always wore flannel shirts. My parents knew his dad real well. 
so we would go over there for dinner and then Billy always showed up at our house at lunch or dinner time. How did he disappear? Tell me about that the last time you saw him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was the last person who saw him alive, which sticks in my gut. A couple of the kids and I were playing on an empty lot in the neighborhood. And I saw Billy, and he always stopped to talk, and he had two guys holding him um, by each of his arms to the point that he was shrugging his shoulders. I remember Brooks being one of the guys holding him. And I'm like, hi, Billy. And he just kind of looked at me. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why isn't he not talking to me? And my feelings were so hurt, but I didn't realize that these two guys were dragging him. And the last thing I remember is Billy looking over his shoulder back at me. And that was the last I saw Billy. So Billy disappears. When did you and your family and his family think something was wrong, that he was missing? He had sent a letter to his dad saying that he had gotten a job and was going to move to Austin, which was very weird for Billy because things were going well at school and he was doing well at home. That's when everybody knew something was wrong. I think they forced him to write the letter. So how did you find out? About him dying? It came on the news. And then we got a phone call a couple of days later. My dad was a state trooper, and he had to go with Mr. Lawrence to identify Billy's body. Do you know how he died? He was put on a torture board. It was very tragic knowing that Billy was one of the boys. Just the amount of boys that were taking from us. Those were our boys. And the fact that they, you know, needlessly killed so many, you don't know what they could have become. And it's just, it's horrible. Were people angry or upset because there were so many kids missing and the, and the police didn't do anything? They had to be. If you're not finding all of these kids that are missing, Somebody dropped the ball somewhere. A year after the murders emerged, Elmer Wayne Henley received a life sentence for six of those murders, six 99-year sentences. David Brooks was convicted of only one murder, the strangulation of 15-year-old Billy Ray Lawrence, and he received a life sentence. Henley continues to apply for parole whenever possible. He calls himself a reformed serial killer. We did try to get an interview with him, but the families of the victims objected, so we couldn't get one. Henley told us in a letter that there were errors in his trial, but he doesn't believe he will ever get paroled. And some people told us that even if he did, he wouldn't survive a day on the outside. In 47 years, David Owen Brooks never spoke publicly to the media. And in May 2020, at the age of 65, David Owen Brooks died in custody from COVID-19. As far as we know, there was no deathbed confession. 
You would think that what happened in Houston in 1973 would have alerted us that these predators were in our midst, hiding in plain sight. The boys willingly got in the car with these guys. They knew them. They went to the same school, hung out in the same neighborhood. And this was the 70s. Nobody worried about teenage boys as much as teenage girls back then. But the abduction, torture, and murder of 27 young men faded from the headlines. After all, the Candyman was dead, and we were happy to forget it. Houston police did look into that mysterious organization in Dallas that Henley told them about, the one that ran an international child sex ring, but nothing came of it. We went back to the world as we wanted it to be. Three years later, and 1,300 miles north, it happened again. That's next time on Episode 2, Stranger Danger. The Clown and the Candyman is an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. John White is our editor, with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.